Good morning. You guys have programs. Also, if you prefer to have a Bible, we're in Psalm 42. So either take out your bulletin and look at that text or flip your Bible there. And while we're getting settled, again, my name is Bijamer Tolui. I come from New York. I'm one of the pastors at Redeemer Presbyterian Church and am very, very glad to be with you this morning. I think this is my fourth time here. So I'm starting to recognize faces and get some that consistency. So it's really a privilege to be back. So thank you for having me. Let's go ahead and read the text and then we'll jump right into our sermon. Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one, with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast, and why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul, verse 6, is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep, and the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony, as my foes taught me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. It's the word of the Lord. Now, This morning in our pre-service prayer, Mark and the worship team and I, as we're committing our time together to God, Mark prayed, and I thought very rightly, thanking God for the gift of Psalm 42, the gift that he's given to our church, the church corporately. And that's an appropriate prayer because I feel like in many ways Psalm 42 is an especially important gift to the people of God. Because when we come to Psalm 42, what we find is the psalmist describing a condition that will certainly come upon you if you're engaged in any kind of spiritual journey, if you're engaged in any kind of spiritual pilgrimage. It's not a matter of if this condition comes upon you. It's just a matter of when. And so Psalm 42 is a gift because it brings this condition to our attention, but it also offers remedies, ways that we might address this condition. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at Psalm 42, and we're going to see three things. First, we have to identify what is the condition presented in Psalm 42. Second, we'll see that the psalm gives us what I call factors which contribute to that condition. I'll explain that when we come to it. So the condition, and then factors that contribute to the condition. And then thirdly, and you'll see by the time we get there, we'll need them. Thirdly, The psalm offers us remedies for the condition. So the condition, factors which contribute to it, and then finally, the remedy. So that's where we're going this morning. So let's start, point one, what are the condition, what is the condition that Psalm 42 presents us with? And it begins, if you look at the text, with a powerful illustration, that of a deer panting for water. The image, of course, is a deer making his way down to a riverbed. And when the deer gets to the riverbed, he finds it all dried up. 
Now, it's a metaphor, of course, and it's describing the experience of the psalmist. And here's what he's saying. The psalmist is like the deer, and God has become to him like a dried-up riverbed. He's not there. In other words, that's what the condition is. Spiritual dryness. Spiritual dryness. The psalmist is thirsting after God and finding no satisfaction. To the psalmist, God feels absent. It's not notice as though the psalmist disbelieves in God. He's just lost his presence, the sense of God, the reality of God. God is not real to him at this moment. Now, that's how the psalm begins with that striking illustration. If we look at the rest of the psalm, we can see how this manifests itself. So glance with me, if you would, verse 2. The psalmist says, when can I go and meet with God? The idea there is, when will I see the face of God? I've lost his presence. If you see verse 3, where is God? Things are happening in my life, and I need him, but I can't find him. When will I see him? Where is he? And then maybe most poignantly in verse 9, the psalmist says, why have you forgotten me? You've forgotten all about me. And those are the kinds of questions that you ask when you're in a season of spiritual dryness. Where is God? Why has he forgotten about me? When will I see his face? Now, friends, please notice, all of those questions, where are you? When will I see you? All of those questions imply the psalmist's belief that he knows God exists. He knows God is there. He's just lost his presence. It's very important and valid to acknowledge the times in our lives where we have intellectual doubts about God's existence. But that's not the case in Psalm 42. The psalmist says, I know God is there. I just can't feel him. He's not real to me. He's not making himself known to me. One author that I was reading in preparation for this sermon, she was describing her experience of spiritual dryness. And she said that in her season of spiritual dryness, quote, it felt like God packed up, moved on, and left no forwarding address. That's what it feels like sometimes in spiritual dryness. Later on in the same article, she said, in prayer, God, this is not a good time for you to be playing hide and seek. It's not a good time for you to be playing hide. See, I know you're out there somewhere. I just can't find you. And I need you. So that's spiritual dryness. Now, what does this feel like for us? It's a prayer life that feels like a one-way conversation. Sometimes you parents, maybe you mothers for Mother's Day, do you ever feel like you're talking to the wall? You're saying things to your children. It's just like it's not. Well, sometimes prayer feels like that. Sorry, I'm trying to adjust this guy. Uh, Sometimes prayer feels like that, doesn't it? A complete one-way conversation. Other times it's coming to Bible reading, hoping that God will speak to you. And there's nothing. There's no resonance. You feel like you've come to a riverbed and it's all dried up. Sometimes it's coming into corporate worship like we are this morning. And you desperately want to meet with God. You desperately want the community of faith to encourage you. And yet you walk out the doors, back to your car, feeling no different than you walked in. Spiritual dryness. I'm seeking you, I'm looking for you, and I can't find you. Now... This psalm also tells us something, and I'll be brief here, about how this condition comes upon God's people. 
Again, notice the image in verses 1 and 2, that of the deer panting for water. Deers are not dumb animals. So if a deer is thirsty, panting for thirst, dying of thirst, it's not as though the deer waited until he was too thirsty and then said, oh, I guess I should go down and get some water now. If a deer is dying of thirst, you know what that means? There's been a drought. There's been a slow and steady season in which over the course of time, the riverbed has dried up. And sometimes that's how spiritual dryness comes upon you. You're moving along in life seemingly ordinarily, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you say, wait a second, I'm dying of thirst. It comes upon you unawares, slowly. But that's not all. Sometimes spiritual dryness can sneak upon you slowly. Other times, glance at verse 7, the psalmist writes, deep calls to deep, in the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. Now this is actually sadly ironic, but in verses 1 and 2, the psalmist is saying, I'm dying of thirst, I need water, God is absent, right? So the image there in verses 1 and 2, there is no water. But when you come to verse 7, the image changes and the psalmist is saying, I'm getting pummeled by waves. I'm getting crashed upon. In other words, I'm in a storm. Now, droughts come upon you slowly, but storms come upon you suddenly, out of nowhere. The language of verse 7 is the same language that Jonah used when he was thrown into the, uh, into the ocean and got swallowed up by the great fish. We're sailing along, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a debilitating storm comes crashing into your life. And these are often occasioned by circumstances, are they not? Things that just come up, and you know what they could be. Broken relationships, bad prognoses from the doctor, troubling news about work, whatever the case might be. But whether it sneaks upon you slowly or comes crashing down suddenly, the result is the same. Verses 5, verses 11, my soul is downcast, deeply disturbed. That is, I'm bearing the weight of the world on my shoulders, and God is nowhere to be found in my moment of need. Spiritual dryness. Now, there's lots of ways that this manifests itself and lots of illustrations that we could use. Before we move on to point two, I want to read to you, I want to give you an illustration that's always been very meaningful to me because of its rawness and its vulnerability. And what I think we have here is the voice in kind of an eloquent way of spiritual dryness. Now, this illustration comes to us from C.S. Lewis. It's in a little book that he wrote entitled Grief Observed. If you know the book, he wrote it basically like a journal entry after his wife passed away. And he's processing his grief and his feeling of God's absence, his feelings of spiritual dryness in this little book. And it's very raw, very vulnerable, and that's why I appreciate it. Let me read to you just a little bit from this book. Lewis writes this, quote, Meanwhile, where is God? If you go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, what do you find? A door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, only silence. Why is he so very absent in our time of trouble? Now, a bit later in the same chapter, Lewis is reflecting God feels absent to me. So what does this mean? How is this going to affect what I believe about God? 
Lewis writes this, It's not that I'm in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but actually, so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. Now, friends, that's raw and vulnerable, isn't it? But is that not the voice of spiritual dryness? I know you're there, but I can't find you. There's nobody on the other end of the line. See, that's spiritual dryness. Now, before we move on to point two, I have to say one final thing. Sometimes, and this especially manifests itself in my own heart, mostly, but also when I'm engaged in pastoral care, pastoral counseling, because sometimes I talk to people, or myself, I'm experiencing spiritual dryness. And whether it's my own heart or talking to somebody else, one of the most common questions is, what did I do wrong? Right? The idea is, if God feels absent, if he's far away, then I must have done something so as to create that absence. It's my fault. Now, there are places in the Bible where God can feel absent from his people because of something they've done, sure. But there's nothing like that in Psalm 42. There's no cause. There's no, the psalmist did this, and that results in God's absence. There is no cause given. And that's important. Sometimes this is the inevitable result of having a life following God. There is no cause given. And that's important because if you're like me, a total pragmatist, you want to know what the causes are so you can get at them and fix them. There is no cause given in Psalm 42. And friends, it's part of spiritual life. Sometimes the spiritual dryness comes upon you. It manifests itself without a cause. That's point one. That's what the psalm, that's the condition he's experiencing, spiritual dryness. This leads us, though, now to point two, what I'm calling the factors that can contribute to our experience of spiritual dryness. Now, let me show you what I mean when I say the factors that contribute. Two things. On one hand... The psalm tells us factors that can lead in to spiritual dryness. So they can lead you into it. But, and probably more importantly, if you're in a season of spiritual dryness, these factors can actually intensify and aggravate that experience of God's absence. So on one hand, they can lead you in. But on the other hand, if you're in that spiritual dryness, these factors make it worse. Okay? I'm going to give you three. The first that we see in this psalm is what I'm calling a loss of community. The psalmist is lonely. Now glance, at, if you would, at verse 6. Do you see there at the end of verse 6 how the psalmist says, from, I, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, Mount Mizar. Now that's actually quite important. Because the psalmist, if you know your geography of Israel, is actually writing this psalm. He's having this experience from the land of the Jordan, which... You know your maps today. Jordan is in the north. It's north of Israel. What's interesting is that the time the psalmist is writing, the epicenter of religious life, the place of worship, is much to the south in Jerusalem. So what the psalmist is saying is he is geographically separated from the place where God's people dwell, the place where God's people worshipped. And that comes across then if you glance now at verse 4. Notice what the psalmist says. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One. 
Now what's he saying? Currently, verse 6, I'm living to the north. I moved away, but I remember, verse 4, paraphrase, when I used to go to church with my friends, when I used to go to the house of God among the festive throng. That is, I remember when it was like a party, when I was with my community, but I've been separated from them. The psalmist is experiencing a loss of community, a season of loneliness, and that is leading into and intensifying his season of spiritual dryness. Now, the way this manifests itself in Manhattan, where I work, and I'm sure to some degree it affects this community too because of its closeness to New York, but frankly just because it's the world we live in. On one hand, we all can experience trouble in community because of how transient things are, right? People come, people go. They're here for a season. They move away. And you have a number of cycles of those, right? You invest in friendships. You pour into people. And then seemingly, for various reasons, they're taken away. They move. They're relocating. And after a couple cycles of that, you just say, man, I'm not, I can't. It's too hard. I can't invest in these friendships anymore. But that loss of community actually contributes to spiritual dryness. But it's not only transients that does that. You guys also know... It's very possible to be around people all the time. And yet because of how busy everybody is, you can be in the physical proximity of a person and feel like you're having no connection with anybody at all. And that loss of community does often lead into and intensify our experience of God's absence. Let me give you the second factor that I see in this psalm. Not just loneliness, but the psalmist also tells us something and this is actually quite nuanced, about the way depression and physical sickness actually contribute to our experience of God's absence. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a British pastor from the last century, but before he was a pastor, he was actually a medical doctor. So he saw something in Psalm 42 that the rest of us pastors would never see, and we benefit from his insight. Look at verse 3. The psalmist says, My tears have been my food day and night. It's actually quite insightful. What's Lloyd-Jones pointing out? He read this verse and he said, that's interesting, isn't it? My food have been my tears day and night. And Lloyd-Jones, the pastor with a medical doctor's eye, says, tells us two things. The psalmist is not eating. He's lost his appetite. His tears have become his food. And he's probably not sleeping. His, food have been, his tears have been his food day and night. He's crying through the night. In other words, it's poetry, of course, but what's the psalmist probably saying? There's a bodily element to what I'm experiencing. There's a physical element in which now a kind of sickness, we might even call it a kind of depression, is actually intensifying and aggravating my experience of God's absence. And friends, don't make the mistake. Christianity is not what we call a dualistic religion that separates the body from the spirit. God made both. And oftentimes, now please don't, I'm not offering medical advice here, but oftentimes I do want to say that our bodies and our spirits are far more interrelated than we probably give appropriate attention to. And the psalmist is saying there's a way in which this season of spiritual dryness is now having a physical impact on me. But it's cyclical, it goes the other way too. So take note of that. Pay attention to that. It's not only a loss of community, but there's also a kind of physical unwellness that's now plaguing the psalmist. 
Let me give you third, and then we'll move on. This third factor that can contribute to this condition, it's what I would call nostalgia. We've already looked at verse 4, but again, glance there. The psalmist says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. What's the psalmist doing? He's remembering how life used to be, going to church with his friends, it was like a party. He remembers that, and that remembering actually leads him to a place of nostalgia in which he's looking back with longing. And you know that, don't you? Sometimes the joy of our past intensifies the pain of our present. We look back, now this is dangerous, isn't it? But we look back to the good days, and we wonder why life is not like it used to be. We wish, th- we, wish we could turn back the clock. Nostalgia. And sometimes that contributes to our seasons of spiritual dryness. Now there's more actually in this psalm. But whether it's a loss of community, whether it's nostalgia, whether it's a physical element, what the psalm is telling us is there's all kinds of factors that contribute to our experiences of feeling God's absence. There is your condition, those are your factors. That leads us thirdly then, final point, we have to ask what practical remedies does this psalm give us for how we address the seasons of spiritual dryness that come into our lives? How do we address the condition? And this is particularly important because if you're like me, most of us never expect spiritual dryness to come our way. We say if we're following God and we're doing the right thing, then of course he's going to help us in our times of need. And we don't expect to ever feel his absence. So when it comes, usually two things happen. One, you're just completely debilitated. You don't know what to do. Or second, you just ignore it. That guy's going to get better. You kind of brush it under the rug, but it doesn't get better. Sometimes for a period longer than you'd like. And that eventually leads to a kind of frustration and even maybe abandoning the whole thing. Because we often say, if God was there and if I was honoring him, then why is he not fill in the blank? We need better resources, better remedies for how to handle spiritual dryness when it comes into our life. Now this song gives us three, I think. The first two are shorter. The third is a bit longer. First, remedy. We continue with our spiritual disciplines in the midst of our spiritual dryness. We continue with our spiritual disciplines in the midst of our spiritual dryness. Now, what do I mean? This is the most general. But if you notice, what's Psalm 42 about? It's about the absence of God. The psalmist doesn't feel God. But what is the shape of Psalm 42? The whole psalm is a prayer. In other words, what's the psalmist doing? He's praying to God about his feeling of God's absence. He's praying to God about his feeling of God's absence. And friends, if you look at Psalm 42, I think I counted earlier this week, I think there are about 15 places where the name God appears in Psalm 42 and 43, which is also related to it. Now, one commentator that I was reading to prepare for this sermon noticed that, had that observation, and said this, quote, God is omnipresent in a psalm that complains of his absence. God is everywhere in a psalm that's saying, where are you? 
Now, what's the point? The psalmist does not feel God, and he goes to God in prayer to tell him that. What's he doing? He's maintaining his spiritual disciplines even though he's spiritually dry. And friends, that sounds like cold medicine, I know. But we have to be a community that learns to engage in our spiritual disciplines even when we're not feeling any result. And that's why we call them disciplines. They could be called, but they're not called spiritual delights because oftentimes they feel like duties. They feel like disciplines. But God, listen, ordinarily reveals himself through things like worship, through things like Bible reading, through things like prayer, through things like the sacrament, through things like community. And the great temptation is when we're not seeing results, we just give up on those things. But the first remedy, the first thing that the psalmist is telling us is maintain those spiritual disciplines because this is the way that God ordinarily reveals himself to his people. It's very hard, but that's the first remedy. Now, that's not the only remedy. If that was, that would be very disappointing. But it is one of the ways that we need to continue in this season. Second, though, not just maintaining your spiritual disciplines... Second remedy that I think the psalm gives us, this is more narrow. We can call this one, the psalmist is learning to preach to himself. He's learning to preach to himself. Look carefully with me, if you would, at verse 5. Now, verse 5 and verse 11 are basically the same, but we'll just look at verse 5. Here's what Verse 5 is a mini-sermon. I'm going to show you what I mean. Verse 5 begins with a question. Why are you downcast? Why are you disturbed? Point one of the sermon, the question. Point two of the sermon, he says, put your hope in God. He exhorts himself. So he questions himself, then he exhorts himself. And the last part of verse five, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Hope is coming. God's going to come through. End of the sermon, he encourages himself. He questions himself. He exhorts himself. He encourages himself. What's he doing? He's looking at himself, if you would, in a spiritual mirror. And he's talking to himself. He's saying, I know things feel very bleak right now. But take the truth, soul. Take the truth that you know about God and put it to use. Apply it to your heart. Preach to yourself. And friends, I have to learn how to do that. It's one thing for me to preach to all of you. Do I know how to preach to myself? Do you know how to preach to yourself? Do we as a community know how to take the truths that we've learned about God and in moments of need apply those truths to our own hearts in a way that encourages us, ourselves, in a season of spiritual dryness? We have to learn how to do this because, and I won't take long here, but you know there's tons of voices in your head, aren't there, telling you all kinds of things every day? Whether it's pressures from the outside or internal pressures, there's all kinds of voices. And... Lloyd-Jones, the same sermon that he talked about, the other thing I mentioned, basically says we need to be better at not listening to ourselves, but talking to ourselves. And there's a difference. Applying the truth of the gospel to our hearts, preaching to ourselves in a way that takes sometimes general truths about God and makes them real to our hearts in moments of need. So that's the second remedy. But that leads us then to the third, probably the most important The third remedy, we are to be a people of hope. A people of hope. Now, you see that in verses 5 and 11, maybe the most important part of this psalm. The psalmist says, put your hope in God. 
talking to himself. Now, hope is a word that we use all the time. What does it mean? Hope is confident expectation. It's looking to the future and trusting God for that future. Now, in thinking about hope, I've learned a lot from Jonathan Edwards. Edwards was an 18th century pastor, and he has a little book titled The Writings on the Trinity, Grace, and Faith. And in that book, he looks at the words faith and hope, and he asks, what are they? How do we think about them? And he says, basically, when you look at the Bible, the words faith and hope are used synonymously, interchangeably, basically. But then Edwards says, if you really press in, like if you look carefully at certain verses, he says, here's what comes out. Faith is used more accurately to describe the active part of the Christian's life, right? So faith is for moving. Faith is for walking. Faith is for going forward in the plans of God, right? We take the hill by faith. That's the deal there. I mean, Edwards didn't say that. I added that part about the hill, but anyhow. So faith is for moving. But then Edwards says, well, what about hope? And Edwards says, hope is what you do when you can't move. Hope is what you do when everything is dark. Hope is what you do when you can't do anything else. And that's why some versions of Psalm 42, maybe you have an English Bible with you that's not the one I'm using, some versions of Psalm 42 don't say hope in God. They say wait for God. Because to hope is to wait. And so much of the religious Christian life is like being in a waiting room. Well, you can't, what's a waiting? You can't do anything. You're waiting. You're, you're just sitting. You're stuck. And the psalmist says, hope in God, wait for God. Now, that's why Hebrews 6 says, hope is an anchor for our soul. What does an anchor do? It keeps you steady in the midst of a storm. And the author is saying, hope is an anchor for your soul. Now, that sounds good, doesn't it? And yet... I'll give you a glimpse into my own soul right now. As a preacher, Mark, I'm sure, experiences this a lot. I certainly do. As a preacher, my job is to do what? It's to take big, abstract, biblical, and theological truths and to try to make them practical, right? To try to take Psalm 42 and say, this is what it means for Monday morning. And so the constant question that every preacher is always asking is, how do I make this practical? How do I make this practical? So I'm preparing this sermon, and I'm saying to myself, oh man, that's going to be my big practical application, like you have to hope in God? Like, what does that mean? Like, hope in what? Hope in who? Hope in how? Like, why don't I even know that? What does that mean? Right? And then you see it on the front of your bulletin. I remember some of you, hopefully most of you have seen the Shawshank Redemption. I'm not going to do a spoiler alert, but do you remember the end of the movie? where one of the characters says to the other character, remember, hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things. And a good thing never dies. And I'm saying, yeah, yeah, hope's a good thing. And then I say to myself, no, no, no. These people, they live in the Northeast. They're cynical. Like, they're skeptical. And they're going to know, that's just a movie. Like, yeah, you know, we can say, like, hope's a good thing. And, you know, the music is fading out in the movie. And you're like, yeah, you know. But then you're like... Sometimes hope's not enough, or it doesn't seem like enough, because the spiritual dryness is too deep. Where is God? 
So is hope really enough? Well, friends, I wish I had more to offer, but that's, I don't. Uh, that's the practical application for today's sermon. You have to hope in God. But here's what I can say. The hope for the Christian, the hope of Psalm 42, is not a vague, abstract hope in some potential future. It's not even hope in hope. A Christian's hope is hope in a person. It's hope in God. Or maybe more accurately, I could even say, or more colorfully, I could say, the Christian's hope is hope in what God has done. Because you know, don't you, what the author of Psalm 42 could not see, but something that you and I can. Many years after this psalm was written, Jesus Christ was walking to the Garden of Gethsemane with his friends. And when he got to that garden, Jesus said to his friends, My soul is deeply downcast and disturbed. Would you guys pray with me tonight? And then he says to those same friends, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Do you hear Psalm 42? Why, my soul, are you downcast? And then we hear the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, My soul is overwhelmed to death. I'm drowning in this dryness. On the cross, hours later, what did Jesus say? I thirst. I thirst. What's happening on the cross? Jesus is experiencing the ultimate spiritual dryness. Psalm 42 is a tiny shadow compared to the magnitude of dryness that Jesus experiences on the cross. Later, on the cross, what does Jesus pray? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 42. I mean, it's quoting Psalm 22, but it's the same as Psalm 42. God is absent in my moment of great need. On the cross, Jesus was panting for water. He was experiencing God's absence. Why did he do that? Why did Jesus plunge himself into the ultimate spiritual dryness? The answer is beautiful and simple. It's so that all of your experiences of spiritual dryness would only be temporary. Yes, you experience God's absence, but it'll never be ultimate. It'll never be final. Jesus plunged himself into the ultimate spiritual dryness so that you, no matter how bleak it seems, would know that your hope is sure and steadfast because one day, and this is quite beautiful, one day we're going to be brought into a city. Revelation 22, Psalm 46, talk about this city in which there's a river. The Bible says a river that makes glad the city of God. And in Revelation 22, we're told that there are trees planted by that river, and it says that they bear fruit 12 months out of the year. Now, what does that mean? Now, I'm not quite sure what that means, but here's what I know for sure in light of our text today. It means there's never a drought. There's never death. In this coming city of God, there's only spiritual life, no spiritual dryness. In other words, what's the point? What's What's the hope that we have? Is that the Lord Jesus Christ plunges himself into the ultimate spiritual dryness so that we would know we're safe in his hand. 
And that in the midst of our experiences of God's absence, we can still hope. And that hope is not vague in some potential future. It's hope in a person, what he's done to bring us into a city where there will never be drought, where there will never be dryness, where there's spiritual life in abundance. So friends, what do you do? You hope in God. And hope is a good thing. It might be the best of things. Because, yeah, a good thing never dies, but Jesus Christ did not die. He died only to rise again. That's why our hope is short and steadfast, because it's in Him. Because it's in Him. We'll close with this. When darkness veils His lovely face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are for the encouragement of Psalm 42, both how real it is and how much hope it offers. As we come down to the table, please sustain us. We need you every minute, every hour. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.